For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up. A conversation with Sierra Tucson's medical director, Jasleen Chotwell, about managing post-election stress. Find out what a program at Pima Community College called Voices on the Economy is doing to diffuse partisan hostility. And a pair of personal reflections on election 2020. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The 2020 presidential election was one of the most stressful in American history. Voters across the political spectrum reported feeling that democracy, prosperity, and their physical and mental health were all on the line. Weeks later, tensions are still running high. What can be done to lessen the intensity of partisan hostility? We'll examine that question next in two stories, produced by Laura Markowitz and Hewan Park. I felt confused and frustrated by people who voted different from me. I mean, everyone's entitled to their own opinions, but sometimes it just doesn't make sense to me why one person would vote one way rather than the other. I feel very frustrated about the whole thing. In the weeks leading up to the election, surveys of Trump supporters in blue states and Biden supporters in red states revealed that both sides were afraid to put up yard signs or drive around with political bumper stickers. They worried about vandalism and angry confrontations with people who supported the other candidate. For many Americans, including people here in Southern Arizona, the red-blue rift doesn't just feel like a heated debate about tax policies or health care or immigration. It feels like a war. When we live in an environment where we don't trust others around us, that is a very traumatic experience. My name is Dr. Jocelyn Chetwal. I am the chief medical officer at Sierra Tucson. She's also the president of the Arizona Psychiatric Society. Before the election, she helped people manage their election stress. Weeks later, many people still feel unsafe. Being hypervigilant watching your back, trying to assess what you can or cannot safely say in a group. Those are all components of trauma. And so in some ways, the culture that we're living in with this extreme bipartisanship is very traumatic for each of us because we are looking at other people as the other. Neuroscientists say we're hardwired to fear the other. We're xenophobic. We tend to feel less empathy for those who are outside our social group. Biologically, evolutionarily, have always been taught that we need to stick with our tribe. Because people who are different, who are not our tribe, will come attack us, they'll take our food, they'll kill our children, they'll take our land. So we're sitting at home and we're wondering about our neighbors. Are they on our side? Can they be trusted? Should we be afraid? That's really how we survived 
out in the wild for a long, long time. Even though you can't see partisanship on the outside, we do have assumptions of people who live in a certain part of the country, belong to a certain party, people who look a certain way. That starts to then further feed into that trauma of living in a place where you have to constantly watch your back, be hypervigilant, figure out who's my friend and who's my foe. What we end up doing is we end up siloing ourselves amongst people who share a common belief system. That might not sound like a problem because, after all, we have more in common with people who think the way we do. But when we limit our contact with those who think differently than we do, we have fewer opportunities to make meaningful connections. And then it might be tempting to start thinking, hmm, if only those others would move to another country, then our problems would be solved. Entertaining thoughts about erasing the other only aggravates our stress. Chatwal says, there's a better method for making ourselves feel less afraid, and that is to look for the humanity in others. So now the place that I work at, you know, we have people who belong to both parties. We all really like each other. My place of work is delightful. And I know very clearly from being Facebook friends with people that there are people on both sides of the aisle. <laughs> and they're all wonderful people. Sometimes it does make you question when you know somebody like that, oh, well, what am I missing, right? And sometimes I've even thought to myself, wow, if they thought so differently from me, how come they still like me? How come I still like them? Sometimes I think curiosity is what can really save us. To be curious about why this person feels differently than I do. And in some ways, you know, people being from different parties at this time is like being from different cultures. And so as, you know, the, we have discussions about race, we have discussions about immigration, we have discussions about bipartisanship. The best thing we can really do is to be curious because we can drive our own assumptions and we can think, you know, this person must believe this. That is why they chose so-and-so candidate. But we don't really know. We haven't lived their life. We haven't had their experiences. Jusseline Chatoile says, if we can no longer love our neighbor as we love ourselves, and if we can no longer see somebody else's point of view, then we cut ourselves off from a part of our own humanity. Becoming less human is really never the path to greater happiness or greater satisfaction in life. Let's just be human. Let's be curious about each other's experience. Let's use this as an opportunity to maybe get to know each other a little bit better. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura Markowitz. And now we'll hear about an innovative program that started at Pima Community College to transform partisan hostility into solution-focused conversations. Laura Markowitz and Hewan Park bring us the story of the VOTE program. 
average salary is at right. 429 If you think about it, most of what we fight about in society ultimately boils down to economics. We vehemently disagree about which policies will create jobs and affordable housing. We can't even agree on how to make sure we all have clean water to drink and breathable air. Progressive taxes just means that as you get richer, you pay a higher percentage of your income in taxes. It's the days before the COVID epidemic, and the Econ 150 class at Pima Community College is discussing how income and wealth get distributed in the U.S. I'm Amy Kramer. I am the founder and president of Voices on the Economy, also known as the VOTE program. Our mission in the VOTE program is to inspire new solutions to our country's urgent economic problems by building a culture of respectful listening, passionate advocacy, and intelligent debate. The idea for the VOTE program came to her after years of frustration with the way economics is normally taught, which is to only present one economic perspective. The VOTE program lines up the liberal, radical, and conservative points of view side by side. Participants compare the different ways each perspective tries to solve 13 economic problems, the spiraling federal debt, poverty among elders, lack of affordable health care, and more. Uh, money is not the thing we're after, right? What we're after is a quality of life and the life that we choose. You guys are conservatives, you guys are radicals, and you guys are liberals. The vote okay. program, For this it issue. has no hidden agenda to convince people that one perspective is better than another. Kramer says the point is to help people understand the different options so they can come to their own conclusions about the best way forward for the nation. I have the great honor and privilege of teaching students from all walks of life, which is fantastic. And the students that I get into my class often say, I have no idea what I think. This is what my parents think. I guess this is what I think. Or I have people who say, you know, I am not going to participate at all. I have nothing to say. Or I have students who come in and are, you know, leading the Occupy Tucson movement and have been arrested 11 times. Or I have students who come in and say, it's the free market that's going to fix it. She says when participants in the vote program can set their partisanship aside, they realize that all three perspectives actually share the same goals. They all want to create material well-being. If you put the most die-hard conservative and the die-hard liberal and die-hard democratic socialist in the same room, and you talked about what is your goal? What do you want? Do you want health care? Do you want water that you can drink? Do you want um, to have a world where we've eliminated poverty? Each one of them is going to say they absolutely want them. Okay, what we can all agree on is that income inequality can cause social conflict. I think we've all seen that, right? And the goal that we share is that every single group, conservatives, radicals, and liberals, every group agrees that income should reward the contribution that a person makes. And once you realize that perspectives have the same goal, but that they have very different ways of getting there, it opens up people's heart. Be people start to trust one another more. 
The secret sauce the VOTE program uses to get people to start to trust one another more sounds easy, but it's actually a challenge. They do role plays and other activities to try on the words of the different perspectives. They have to speak aloud ideas they disagree with. They have to do it without sarcasm and with conviction. They get assigned to represent different perspectives, and they wonder at the beginning, how am I possibly going to do this? And so that's what we're talking about here. I want you to try on those words. So even though my job doesn't pay much, I feel optimistic about my opportunities to rise because our nation has policies that level the playing field. Right. So you see, you're just trying on those words to have them make sense from your perspective. So what I want you to do, find somebody in Europe, make eye contact, and say one thing as if you really mean it. So that you're trying on those words. I deserve what I earn because I've made the countless personal sacrifices to achieve my success, and tax cuts reward me for being a hard worker and an entrepreneur. By the way, this is actually a technique that's used in couples therapy. When partners mirror back what the other is saying, they start to feel more curiosity and empathy. Kramer says the same thing happens in the vote program, when participants try on the voices of all three perspectives. That's the open door. That's the place where we all of a sudden say, whoa, you're not my enemy. Wait a minute. Every perspective actually wants to solve the problems. They just have very different ways of getting there. On the last day of the semester, she asked participants how many changed their perspectives on at least one issue. She says in every class, it's well over 90%. For Rebecca Lee, who took the class in the summer, when the presidential election was just heating up, it wasn't that her perspective changed on an issue, but her feelings changed about people who support opposing perspectives. I think I am less judgmental because I feel more curious about how their point of view came about and why they believe what they believe. And I think just having a more worldly view about other people's perspectives helped strengthen my own opinions. Instead of becoming more entrenched, instead of slipping more deeply into our silos, we need to be curious about how each perspective is going about solving those problems. But at the end of the day, the goal of the VOTE program is actually not to get everyone to see it the same way. We won't unite in agreement. That's a reality of our human condition. Surprisingly, Kramer doesn't think that's a problem. In fact, she sees it as an asset. She says we'll find those desperately needed new solutions to our urgent economic problems precisely because we have diverse ways of thinking about issues. When we can listen to competing perspectives with an open mind, that combative debate that we live with becomes solution-focused conversation, and we set the foundation for innovative thinking to emerge. But first, we need to listen and understand what the other perspectives are bringing to the table. Let's be respectful in our listening. Let's be passionate in our um, advocacy and intelligent in our debate. If we do that, we, we launch into new ways of thinking. Amy Kramer hopes the VOTE program will inspire the next great economic thinkers. She says we're due for a new way to think about building prosperity for the 21st century. Her vision of the VOTE program is that when we're free from material worry, we'll each be able to contribute our unique gifts and society will reach its highest potential. For Arizona Spotlight, 
This is Huon Park. For more information on the VOTE program and how to access their free online book, visit the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Next, an essay about how one woman found herself processing the 2020 presidential election while looking ahead to what is around the corner. Adiba Nelson is a Tucson-based author and activist and an independent contributor to the show. Her commentary does not reflect the opinions of Arizona public media. I'm Adiba Nelson, and this is The Word. Is this what exhaling feels like? I listened to CNN call the 2020 presidential election for Joe Biden and realized that I had been holding my breath for the last four years. As I felt myself exhale, my shoulders fall and my jaw release a bit, I realized that I was also crying, something I did not expect. I felt my hands begin to shake and the lump in my throat grow. For four years, I'd been taking in short, stilted breaths, always on the verge of hyperventilating. This summer, with the news of the fatal shootings of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, and the death of George Floyd, I almost suffocated. But that morning, I felt it. I felt the exhale. Now, does President-elect Joe Biden have a problematic history with Black America? Yes. Does Vice President-elect Kamala D. Harris have a complicated history with Black America? Also, yes. But will they inspire a nation of people to want to kill me with wanton lust simply because I don't look like them? No. And that's what the last four years have felt like for me. For four years, I have gone about my daily life with knowledge and fear tucked into the recesses of my brain that anyone emboldened enough police officer or civilian, could end my life simply because they wanted to. For four years, I watched American flags fly behind a president who spoke to life and liberty and freedom, all the while knowing that he wasn't speaking in terms that applied to me or my daughter. That flag began to feel like a threat. I would see it on houses and flying from cars and immediately think, this person voted against my life. I saw the flag flying high and said, you voted against the rights of my disabled daughter, my trans brother, my gay cousin, my aging mother, my undocumented friends, my black family, my queer self, my female body. For four years, I have felt less safe than ever before. Now, I am not saying that Biden will rescue us. And Harris cannot alone show us the error of our ways make us have a change of heart, and make everything right in this country again. No, that will never be the case. What I am saying is that today, I feel like just a small part of my faith was restored. With Biden and Harris, we have opened the door and have begun to let in a little bit of that outside light. We've metaphorically taken the pin out and allowed the country some space to breathe even if it's just for a moment before we really dig into the work. 
And yes, we have an exponential amount of work to do and undo. But you can't win a marathon with a knee on your neck. And yes, I really mean to invoke the imagery of the death of Floyd because his death at the hands of police as gut-wrenching and heartbreaking and disgustingly and callously violent as it was, was the image that America needed to be able to really see itself and feel what Black and brown people have felt for decades. I can't breathe is more than a hashtag or a slogan. It is the collective outcry of people who have been waiting to exhale for centuries. We've been too close to suffocating for far too long. Here's to the next four years. May we all exhale. Adiba Nelson is also the author of a children's book about inclusion called Meet Clarabelle Blue. She is currently writing her memoir called Ain't That a Mother? This essay was published in The Lily, a publication of The Washington Post, available at thelily.com. Perhaps more than ever, the participation of volunteers who canvassed voting precincts and observed the process at polling stations was vital to the integrity of the election. Next, a first-hand account of those experiences from Fenton Johnson, an award-winning writer and professor emeritus at the University of Arizona. Saturday before Election Day, masked and socially distancing, a friend and I canvassed precincts, a civic responsibility I rank just below root canals on my list of preferred activities. We have knocked on doors in a large rental complex and are walking back to the car with little to show for our afternoon when we pass a Tucson police officer interviewing two young Latinx women, one of whom is holding a newborn. I overhear the word ballot. Still in canvassing overdrive, I turn and say, you need a ballot? Our car was stolen, one woman says, with their completed signed ballots tucked between the baby's diapers and the stroller. I can help you with that, I say, expecting they'll brush me off, a stolen car and a diaper shortage ranking way above voting in my priorities. But they are deeply concerned at the loss of their ballots and willingly provide contact information. Later, I send them an email describing how to file a provisional ballot and offering to drive them to the nearest polling place, but I don't receive a response. On election day, I volunteer as a party-certified observer at a polling place north of downtown Tucson. I send the young women a text, again offering a ride to their polling place. Again, I don't hear back. The precinct I've been assigned is composed of older established households and students living in apartment complexes. Throughout the day, there's a slow stream of young people, many voting for the first time, a fact they sometimes audibly confess, but more often reveal through their nervousness and excitement. The only activity more boring than checking in voters is watching people check in voters. And yet in my stints as a certified observer, I was continually impressed by the workers' competence, seriousness, and professionalism. This human design system is not free from error, though it has so many verifications and recountings that the likelihood of a mistake going unnoticed is slim, and opportunities for malfeasance virtually non-existent. 
In addition to allowing individual observers, the Pima County Elections Office maintains a public observation window from which anyone can watch the counting, as well as publicly linked webcams available 24-7 to insomniacs or conspiracy theorists. Why would anyone try to game the system at this level, where the process is designed to detect and prevent fraud instead of manipulating the platform provided by unregulated social media? Observing the process brought me to take my own vote more seriously. The dedication that the workers brought to their tedious, important jobs was infectious. Every 18-year-old, along with everyone who's carried a Stop the Steal sign and every elected official, should be required to observe the casting, verification, and tally of ballots. That would go a long way toward debunking claims of fraud and manipulation. A first-time voter asks to have her photograph taken so she can share the moment with friends. The poll workers cheerfully oblige to be pounced on by the other party's observer for violating the rule against photography inside the polling place. The poll workers point out that they had taken the picture with the voter's camera at her request and that she had posed not with her ballot, which she had already deposited, but with a blank piece of paper. But he is adamant and they are clearly rattled at being so closely surveilled. The tension is palpable and likely exacerbated by my excessive texting to my companion volunteers outside. Somehow voting, this exhilarating and energizing gesture, a declaration of citizenship and a rite of passage into adulthood, has been tainted by the overzealous kibitzing of my counterpart observer and by the unfounded, unproven allegations of fraud that hang over us like smog. What has been lost in the past decade is trust in the process, which is to say, trust in each other. Often inflamed by social media, neighbors with differing experiences and opinions have become enemies, and whose agenda is being served by that? Then I hear my phone buzz. They finally found our car, the text reads. We're on our way to vote right now, to the polling place whose address I had provided. At first, I am mortified by my lack of faith in these young women and appropriately self-chastise. But then I am inordinately pleased at this small reward and grateful to the goddess of the ballot box for arranging my encounter with two of those many young people determined to vote. Near sunset, in a wonderfully Tucson moment, a New Orleans jazz band sets up shop across the street, situating themselves outside the 75-foot no-politicking zone. Jazz is a political statement, and for sure the tubas and trombones give voice to a diverse and fun-loving America and alleviate the tension of performing a painstaking task under suspicious eyes. Stuck inside, longing to dance, I find myself thinking that what we need now is less social media and more music. Fenton Johnson is the author of seven books, most recently At the Center of All Beauty, Solitude and the Creative Life, a New York Times Editor's Choice selection. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.
Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.